Heavenly Father, we thank You that You keep Your promises. That You sent Jesus, Your Son, to live and to die and to rise from the dead. And that because of His sacrifice, we have forgiveness and freedom and redemption and eternal life. And Lord, we're keenly aware that the Scriptures have been given for our learning. Paul said that we, through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Some of us might be naive enough to believe it's simply a story. But, Lord, for those of us who know you and who love you and who walk with you, Lord, we know that this scripture has been given for our edification so that we could be men and women who will draw near to you and who will love you, who will decide to do what's right instead of what's wrong, and who will decide to follow you instead of run away from you. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naot in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means... You shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It, it is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes and have said, Do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you desire, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is my witness. When I have sounded out my father... Sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there's a good, indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan, but if it pleases my father to, to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone at Sel. 
Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, go find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. We're going to pause there and continue. Remember what the theme of the earlier chapters were. Saul wants to kill David. And Saul considers David a threat to his throne or power. And a threat to Jonathan, that is his future. The Lord continues to protect David. And again, it becomes that reoccurring theme. Saul is a king under his own power. And David is the man who would be king. Saul is a usurper and a pretender. And David is the true king. In chapter 18, David trusted the Lord. In chapter 19, David trusted his men. He trusted his friend Jonathan. He trusted his wife Michael. And remember what we learned. He trusted the man of God, Samuel. And you'll remember when we came to the end of chapter 19, so long as he was in that inner circle, he was fine and he was safe. Now, David begins to wear under the pressure. And he returns, if you will, to the place where Saul and Jonathan have their headquarters. And the, the characteristics of selfishness and, and impatience begin to surface once again. God has called him. God has called David. God has anointed David. But David is going to resort to some of his old habits of lying and trickery and and deceit. You know, one of the most shocking things that happens to a new Christian, they experience the joy of redemption and forgiveness and hope. And then all of a sudden, sometimes the old nature peeks its ugly head through our circumstances. And you thought, I thought that that part of my life was gone forever. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The friendship of David and Jonathan are going to be tested and it's going to be tested almost to the breaking point. And make no mistake about it, Jonathan is going to pay a terrible price for love and loyalty to his friend David. One of the poets said, his heart is full of fear. With foes so strong and flesh so frail and reason and unbelief prevail, forgetting God is near. Sometimes we need a reality check. We need to know where we're at with the Lord. And that's exactly where we're at in the chapter and in the life of David. David's life is falling apart. Have you ever been in a circumstance like that? Where you felt like your life was unraveling? And David's desperate cry in verse 3 will set the tone for the whole chapter. Read it again. But truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. Do you understand the imagery? He says, I'm walking a tightrope. Have you ever felt you were walking a tightrope? You're putting one foot in front of the other. To the right, all you see is a cavern. To the left, all you see is a pit. And you know if you step in one direction or the other direction, you're going to plummet into certain doom. That's exactly how David feels. He's walking a tightrope with death, just one false step. There's a poet in our own culture who said, Life ain't nothing but a heartbeat away. I'm living life, do or die. What can I say? 
23, never will I see 24, the way things are going. I don't know. You know, we laugh. But if you look beyond the rap and you look into the heart and you say, you're living in a culture, you're living in a society, you're living in a neighborhood where today might be your last day. You may not live that way. You may have never lived in a circumstance where you felt like your life was threatened, but this is exactly how he feels. If you continue on the appointed path, you're going to almost certainly die. And that's what traumatic events do, whether it's a car accident or combat or terrorism or violence or acts of war or sexual abuse. It can sometimes trigger this uncontrolled panic inside of you. I have to ask you a question. Has it ever been your experience that desperate people do desperate things? David is desperate. Desperate people sometimes lie and they sometimes cheat and they sometimes steal to preserve what they think is their right to remain alive. And think about it for just a moment. David's faith is faltering. And instead of waiting to seek the Lord's will, he flees in fear and he tries to scheme his way out of his problems. And guess what? If you ever find yourself in that circumstance where you're so afraid that you're unwilling to open up your Bible and cry out to God, then be careful. Are you a Christian who has experienced the joy of victory, but also the agony of defeat. Maybe you've killed a bear or two, or you've killed a lion or two, or you've killed a giant or two, but now all of a sudden you find yourself in a circumstance very much like David, where the enemy is threatening your sanity or your safety. And Saul is a picture of, like I said, the man after the flesh. The carnal man, the angry man. But guess what? He is every person who threatens you. And that's exactly what's happening. Saul is jealous and Saul is fearful and Saul is threatened by David and Saul is intimidated by David. I I want you to just think for just a moment. He is a man who wants to remain king at any cost. And that's exactly your flesh is. Remember, before you became a Christian, before you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were used to telling yourself, I can do what I want. I can get up where I want. I can go to bed when I want. I can go to the left or I can go to the right. I can be with whoever I want to be with. I can do whatever I want. And then you get saved and you enter into a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And now all of a sudden, the Bible invites you to put to death the old man and to live your new life in Jesus Christ. But the old flesh keeps popping up asserting its right to have control over your life. In the Bible, remember what the flesh life is. It's our life apart from God, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, apart from the plan of God, apart from grace. That's not who you are. You have the grace of God. You have the Spirit of God. You have the gifting of God and the plan of God and the word of God. But the flesh wants to live apart from grace. And apart from the presence of God. And so the flesh invites you to close your Bible and shut your mouth and walk away from the friendship and fellowship that the spiritual person inside of you craves. By the way, when our flesh is threatened, sometimes we want to fight fire with fire. If someone hurts us, we want to hurt them back. If someone ridicules us, we want to ridicule them. If someone disrespects us, We want to disrespect them, but that isn't God's way. The Lord is kicking out the props 
The Lord is bringing David to a place of surrender and dependence. And David's faith is being challenged. He's been demoted. He's been disappointed. His position in life has not given him power over his enemy. And David has placed confidence and friendship with Jonathan and marriage and Michael. He sought refuge in in the man of God. But when David trusts Samuel to intervene, he watches as Samuel uses the spiritual weapons to defeat the foe. And then he leaves. And the pressure comes back. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, remember, the flesh lusts against the spirit. The spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things you want. Galatians 5.24 And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and with its desire, but some of us haven't. In Romans 8.13 it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit... You will put to to death the deeds of your body and you will live. It's a spiritual fight. And your weapons are spiritual. Look again in verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Now remember, there's two kinds of bad things that happen to you. Things that you invite (laughs) because of bad behavior. And things that you didn't invite. David and Jonathan are reunited. And they renew their friendship and their fellowship and their deep conversation. And the deep conversation consists of David making four statements and then Jonathan's reply. Like I said, we're not told why David left the safety of Samuel's covering, but he leaves Samuel, he encounters Jonathan, and once again, Saul seems to have experienced a change of heart. Just like your flesh. Okay, if you insist on going to church, if you insist on opening your Bible, if you insist on praying, okay. But just, you know, don't be a fanatic. Don't do it every day. I mean, it's one thing to, on occasion, tell people about your faith. But why do you, like everybody you meet, why do you feel compelled to tell them about Jesus? And then it asserts its ugly head. Chuck Swindoll writes, it appears that David is weakening, losing emotional strength at this point, unquote. And and when we begin to unravel emotionally, we can hardly blame David for seeking support and help. If you've ever been in a situation where your life is hanging in the balance and you begin to emotionally unravel, doesn't it make perfect sense that you seek out the people who love you and who care about you? I don't blame David for seeking support and help. Some have suggested that David's dependence on Jonathan was self-centered and impatient, but I don't think I'm willing to go there. I think it's okay for us to divide the sorrow, and I think it's okay for us to share the joy, and I think it's okay for us to enter into friendship and fellowship in Christ. But here's what I would point out. They didn't seek the Lord. They don't pray in this in this particular section of, of Scripture. And clearly, David pleads his innocence, and he appears to be innocent. Years later, tragically, David will have committed several catastrophic sins, and he'll be driven into exile by his then son Absalom, his bitter Tears tell the story of sinful sorrowing and the harvest of his own sowing. One Bible writer writes, quote, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Quoting 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10, David's course foreshadowed the path of our Lord Jesus. Even if it was an imperfect shadow of David's Lord, it could be said at the close of that pathway of suffering, love, This man has done nothing amiss. This is the difference between David and David's son. 
Was there a time when David was innocent? Yes. Did he remain innocent his whole life? No. Was Jesus innocent? Yes. Did he remain innocent his whole ministry? Yes. And look at verse 2. So Jonathan says to him, By no means you shall not die indeed. My father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. He's in a way advocating for his father. No, my dad doesn't really hate you as much as it may seem. Clearly, yes, he's tried to have you assassinated several times. But how can we let a little thing like that... Hey, people change, right? Jonathan loves David. And David feels like he can pour out his troubles to his beloved friend. And Jonathan is ready to receive the burden of grief and shoulder the pain of his father's relentless persecution of David. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrow and he was certainly no stranger to to grief. He was acquainted with sorrow, the Bible says. And David would become a picture of his future famous son. David has at least one person to comfort him. But Jesus will be left alone. And when Jesus was denied, he never denied his own. Jesus gives comfort to the weary and Jesus is medicine for the soul. Jesus heals the brokenhearted and the wounded hearted. And in every cloud of sorrow, he's the rainbow, the promise and the storm. But Jonathan divides the sorrow. But he's wounded by his father's sin and his friend's sorrow. And that's often what a friend will do. He will position himself between the source of pain and the object of pain. Jonathan answers his love's answer. It's not as bad as you might think. Some people will read verse 2 and think, Jonathan, this is wishful thinking. And clearly, David isn't as confident as Jonathan. David must have known that Jonathan's love and Jonathan's loyalty would only make Saul's persecution and hatred and jealousy more intense. Hasn't that been your experience? That the more you love the Lord, the more you love Jesus, the more agitated and repulsed your flesh becomes. And look what it says in verse 3. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. We've already talked about it. David's perspective is that he's only a brief step away from total annihilation. And by the way, that's man's perspective. And sometimes it seems to be true. When your life hangs in the balance, when it feels like your world is falling apart, it feels like death. It feels cold. And it feels desperate. But that's not God's point of view. We see from this limited circumstance, but the Bible says that God sees from heaven. And in a sense, David, and you've got to understand this, he is indestructible. He is invulnerable until God is, with, is through with him. David can't die unless David... Unless the Lord says it's time to die. You know, many, many years ago, Skip Heitzig and I, he's one of my good friends. We, we've, done, we've had a lot of adventures in our life. And after his father died, his father left him a 67 Land Rover that had been in the garage for maybe 20 years. And so Skip and I flew out to Apple Valley. It's the little desert community where we grew up. We borrowed a French uh, truck and we hooked this Land Rover 
uh, to our truck and we began the long trek back to Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we're driving, you know, and we're driving through the desert and we finally make it through Flagstaff, Arizona and a snowstorm hits and it's whiteout conditions. But Skip, Skip continues to drive the speed limit. I say, Skip, slow down. 55 miles an hour, that's the speed limit. Skip, you can't see 10 feet in front of you. This is a bad idea. Even an Arizona Highway Patrolman starts speeding up to us dangerously and goes, he's signaling him to slow down. And he goes, the speed limit. I go, what are you, insane? And sure enough, in about 15 seconds, he hits a patch of ice, and here we are with a big truck towing another uh, SUV, and we go into a 360 spin. Now, if you've ever been on a 360 spin on the, on the highway, and you see the cars going by you, you, you exchange a quick glance. It's been nice knowing you. Because we're both going to die. And if we're not going to die, we're going to be seriously injured. But we didn't die. We weren't even seriously injured. His life and my life were in God's hands. I don't want to embolden you to do weird and crazy things. But your life is in God's hands. You will live as long as it takes for God to accomplish the plan and purpose that he has for, for you. From faith's perspective, David was in the no danger zone. The God who delivered David from the lion and the bear and the giant would preserve his life. And it would appear that Jonathan is torn between his love for his father and his love for his friend. And like some children, they either paint their dad out as some cartoon character or some noble hero. And I find it really interesting that Jonathan had a father who didn't trust anyone. But his son seemed to have this uncanny ability to trust everyone. And look at verse 4. So Jonathan said to David, whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. You know what? Are those the words that you say to Jesus? Are those the words that you're willing to say to Jesus, to David's son? Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it. This is the statement of a person whose heart no longer belongs to themselves. My heart isn't my own. My will isn't my own. My future isn't my own. Tell me what you want me to do. The words of Jonathan are the words of a surrendered man. And this is what a person does who is entirely at the disposal of his beloved. Whatever you desire. Those are the great words of discipleship. Not my will, but your will be done. Would you say that David and Jonathan's friendship are under trial? The answer is definitely. Real friendships will experience real tests. Have you ever entered into a friendship and a relationship and then all of a sudden things didn't turn out the way that you had hoped? Did you ever find yourself crying in a lonely corner saying, how come nobody ever told me that being your friend is going to be this difficult? Hey, guess what? Real friendships get really tested, don't they? But I'm here to tell you something. A real friendship can survive when you care about honesty more than you care about fear. By the way, 
fear is threatening their relationship. But their relationship is going to survive. By the way, if your relationship can't survive honesty, then guess what it is? Superficial. Surface. And look what it says in verse 5. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow's the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat, but let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says, Thus it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he's angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. In other words, what do you want me to do? And David says, I want you to scheme with me about how we can try to figure out what your dad is really up to. David is convinced of Jonathan's love and loyalty. And so they hatch this plot to try and feel how Saul is going to react to David's presence or absence. And the next day must have been a major feast on the Jewish calendar when it says it's the new moon and it's a feast day. Think one of the seven great feasts. Think Yom Kippur. Think Rosh Hashanah. David would hide himself under the guise, the lie, that he's observing the feast day in Bethlehem. And it's quite possible that he wanted to do it with his family. But remember, David is a king's man. And because he's a king's man, he's expected to sit at the king's table. But what do you do if the king wants you dead? And you're thinking, yeah, what do you do? What do you do if you're put into a hopeless and an impossible situation? Oh, here's what you do. You rationalize your fear and you lie, cheat, and steal and you default to your old ways. No. That's not what you do. If Saul agreed that David could forsake the feast for the sacrifice, all would be well. But if not, Saul's intentions were evil, according to verse 8. And I want you to get something, and I want you to understand that David is begging for mercy. But not for the reasons that you might think. David isn't begging for mercy because he's afraid to die. I want you to know something, that I am convinced that David is not a coward and he is not afraid to die. But if he has to die, he just wants to die under the right circumstances. If he must die, then let him die at the hands of mercy. That's why he says to his friend Jonathan, look, if I'm going to die, then you kill me. I would rather die at the hand of someone who loves me than someone who hates me. David doesn't want to fall victim to a king who has no business being the king. And Jonathan refuses to hear it. And so Jonathan does what really good friends do. He places himself between the trouble and the person that he loves. And in verses 9 and 10, look what it says. But Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I would, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? David's not out of the woods. How will he be able to tell Saul's true attitude and Saul's true intention. And we read love's confirmation. Look at verse 11. It says, And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the field. Now, imagine the scene. the, The scene shifts to a lonely field. There is this wide open space. And remember, this is a time when sophisticated eavesdropping didn't exist. David can't say to Jonathan, okay, you wear this wire. When you go in and we will tape record your father's conversation. This is sophisticated surveillance doesn't exist at this point. So... Jonathan swears an oath and he binds himself to a covenant to David. And this is interesting. 
David sees his life on the line. And Jonathan sees David as the king of Israel. David sees himself being squeezed in the jaws of death. And Jonathan sees David in royal robes with a royal sash wearing a golden crown in power and in glory. Jonathan sees David sitting on a throne And Jonathan relinquishes all for a man who is at the present moment being hounded by his homicidal father. Now, you've got to understand something. This is remarkable faith and unsurpassed humility. Don't you hate it when you feel like your life is falling apart? And someone says to you, God's still on the throne. I know it looks bad, but it's not as bad as it seems. Don't you realize that your sin is forgiven and that you're going to heaven instead of hell? Hey, thanks for sharing that with me, but it looks like my life is falling apart. But guess what? When your life is falling apart, it's always a good idea to have someone close to you and near to you to remind you that your world collapsing isn't the real world and it's not the permanent world. Like the disciples of Jesus who follow Jesus, when all the reward of following Jesus... Okay, tell me again. If I follow you, Jesus, where is this going to lead me? I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die on a cross. Okay, what other saviors are available? What other kinds of gurus might I be able to follow? Yeah. Following Jesus, if it leads to a cross, if it leads to a place of execution, and it it leads to a place of death, it doesn't seem to provide a whole lot of motivation. And David is trying to remind him that it looks like his life is going to end in tragedy. And Jonathan says, no, that's not who you are. And that's not the life that God has provided for you. That's what faith does. Faith sees what others cannot see or will not see or refuses to see. It sees in Jesus what others miss. And when I was thinking about this particular passage of Scripture, you know, we're studying uh, John chapter 19 and John chapter 20. We've been studying on, on Sunday mornings, and you'll remember that there's that poignant scene in Jesus' own crucifixion. And remember, on his right-hand side, there's a thief. And on his left-hand side, there's a thief. And remember that both thieves are hanging next to Jesus, and one thief looks at Jesus and he sees a condemned criminal and the other thief looks at Jesus and he sees a king. How is that possible? How can two people in the exact same circumstances look at Jesus and see something so totally different? And how is it possible That when you look at Jesus and you can't believe that his careful love and his careful concern isn't totally, completely committed to you. How is it that you can look at him and not see what the Bible clearly says is true? And one thief sees a crucified criminal scourged and scorned and the other sees a king and he calls out to him and he says remember me when you come into your kingdom when he's hanging on the cross he doesn't look like a king and the crown that you see is simply a crown of thorns and the robe is a torn cloth that just simply hides his nakedness from a prying world. 
And you know what's interesting to me? One thief ridicules and casts scorn, and the other casts himself on the mercy of the king. And one is given eternal life. And the other is rewarded with eternal punishment. David makes a vow. Jonathan says, look, you're a king. And when you become the king, I want you to make a promise never to hurt anyone in my family or to hurt anyone in my future. And by the way, Jonathan won't be removed from succession to the throne of David. Jonathan won't abdicate. It's the weapons of the Philistines that will remove him. In a few short chapters, we're going to see Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, and he's going to be seated at David's table, and he's going to be placed at David's table as if he is his own flesh and blood. David is going to treat Mephibosheth as if he as if he is his own flesh and blood. And guess what? That's exactly what King Jesus does for you. He will seat you at his banqueting table. And so David makes the vow not to harm. And Jonathan and David, they concoct the plan. David is going to hide behind the rock called Etzel in verse 19. Look what it says in verse 11. Then Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out. Verse 12. Then Jonathan says to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I've sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is a... There is good toward David, and I do not sin to you and tell you, may the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I'm going to report it. I'm going to send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you. As he's been with my father, in verse 14, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And now Jonathan again caused David to bow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you've stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid in the day of the deed and remain by the stone Excel, not Excel, Excel. Excel is a power company. I'll explain in just a moment. In three days, Saul's attitude is going to be revealed. Three arrows are going to be the sign. By the way, do you know what the word Excel means in the Hebrew language? It means the place of departure. Isn't that interesting? If three arrows shot beyond David would take his place in the wilderness, walking as a homeless fugitive, hounded and persecuted. Here's what he's saying. If the arrows fall short, then that means you're going to be safe. And if the arrows fly long, that means my dad is really, really upset with you. And we understand what's going to happen. The arrows are shot long. I want you to understand something. David will be forced to walk the land as a fugitive. But it's a land he's destined to rule. The places where he's hiding, the nooks and the crannies, the plains and the bushes, he's going to hide. But he's going to become very, very familiar with the place that God has called him to rule. And look what it says in verse 24. 
Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat as at other times on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. God's feast requires God's man. By the way, is Samuel at the feast? No. David can't sit down with Saul. The man of God and the spiritual man won't sit down with the man of the flesh. Now, think about it. Jonathan is sitting across from his father. Abner the general sits by Saul's side. And David's seat is empty. And you know what you get from the text? It's conspicuous by his absence. The whole feast seems empty without David. And Jonathan's heart is with David. Who's hiding in the empty spaces. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of religion in general. Remember what the feasts are? The feasts were a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been involved in a religion that, for whatever reason, Jesus wasn't welcome? You know, we're very religious. Yeah, could you help me understand where Jesus fits in here? Where does his love fit in? And where does his grace fit in? And where does his mercy fit in? And and I know this is a great, big, huge feast, but the seat where Jesus is supposed to be sitting seems absent. It reminds me of what takes place in John's Gospel in chapter 7, verse 1, where in the New Testament, Jesus refuses to go up to the feast because it's not his time. And in John 7, 1, it says, after these things, Jesus walked in the Galilee. He didn't want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. David goes, you know, I, I think I'll pass on the feast since um, Saul wants to kill me. Jesus says, I think I'll pass on the church service. I mean, can you imagine going to a church where everybody wants you dead? Think I'll pass. David's seat is empty at the feast. Jesus is seat is empty at the feast. In both feasts, the king is absent. He's asked for, but make no mistake about it, the false rulers want them dead. And look what it says in verse 25. Now the king sat on his seat as at other times on a seat by the wall and Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side but David's place was empty nevertheless Saul didn't say anything that day for he thought something's happened to him he's unclean surely he's unclean and by the way in religious observances if you touched a dead body you became unclean you couldn't enter into the festival or you couldn't enter into the festivities in verse 27 and it happened the next day the second day of the month that David's place was empty and Saul said to Jonathan his son why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today verse 28 so Jonathan answered Saul well David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem by the way the implication is only two people could excuse you from the seat. The king or the crown prince. Anything other than the king excusing you or the crown prince excusing you was cause for alarm. And he says, I gave him permission. Verse 29, he said, please let me go for our family is a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Read, delete, expletive, delete, delete, question mark, exclamation point. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? This is an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew that is really bad. And I'm really reluctant to even tell you 
what it means. So I'm going to give you the initials. It's S-O-B. And it doesn't mean son of beloved. He is impugning not only his son's birth, but the character of his own mother. To the shame of your mother's nakedness, there was nothing more perverse and more wicked in that culture. In other words, Saul is reaching into the garbage pit to try and come up with the worst epithet that he could think of. And I've told you guys the story about visiting California and, you know, the people are yelling and screaming at each other. And I told you the story about the husband and wife who got into an argument and they called themselves each other every filthy and disgusting thing that you can imagine. And finally, the girl in frustration, trying to think of the most wicked thing that she could say to her boyfriend or husband, said, you tourist. That's the worst thing you can call a person in California. And in verse 31, it says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established nor your kingdom. Think about it. David is gone, and Jonathan sticks up for his friend. When you stand up for Jesus, you're going to be exposed to the javelins the flesh has to throw. Javelins of murder and envy and hatred. Jonathan is bold. He sticks up for his beloved friend David. In verse 32 it says, And Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul casts a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew it was determined by his father to kill David. Think about what's happening. The ugly truth begins to descend on Jonathan's heart. There is nothing. There is no one that will keep him from trying to murder David. And he's willing to kill his own flesh and blood in order to make it happen. He sticks up for his friend and he suffers for it. When Jonathan pressed his full love for David against the torrential outpouring of Saul's persistent and wicked and cruel condemnation, he experiences the full wrath of his father. But make no mistake about it, the full wrath of his father is intended for David. This is what Jesus means when he said, Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake. I need you to understand. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? I need you to understand that they hated me before they hated you. That's why when a person whispers or shouts or screams, You Christians, you're all the same. You're all alike. Saul thinks he's doing his son a favor. And you may not believe it, but your family and your friends and your neighbors, when they cuss you out, when they shake you up, when they slap you around, in their wicked and perverse way of thinking, they think that they're doing you a favor. Snap out of it! Mind control! Close your Bible. Don't you realize that you've been infected with some sort of strange religious disease? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Snap out of it! Don't you realize? (laughs) I know because I used to be on the persecuting side. Wake up! Snap out of it! Saul thinks he's protecting his son's future. Now think about the perversity of that. I'm willing to kill you in order to ensure your future. Yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Jonathan leaves the table where his friend has been 
disgrace. Look at verse 34. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. Are you willing to get up and leave the table and walk away from this world's banquet? Are you willing to get up and walk away from the perpetual filth of films and videos and programs and music that make fun of your friend and your king. He becomes the butt of their incessant jokes and the object of perpetual scorn and ridicule. At what point are you going to excuse yourself from the table? And say, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Is it when they declare their open hostility and hatred for the Lord that you love? Chapin writes, Jonathan's response was a mixture of anger and grief. His leaving the table dissociated him from his father's conclusions about his friend, but he still grieved because of the shameful way his father had treated David. There is a sense in which Jonathan was faithful to his father at a much higher level than Saul could ever appreciate. Jonathan bore his father's anger and hostility without denouncing him. He never turned against him. He never left him. He died beside him in battle. Though he did warn David of his father's intentions, there was a sense in which he was true to both his father and his friend. He grieved for circumstances he didn't create. And he couldn't change Unquote. I love that. Jonathan is grieved for David. Are we grieved for Jesus? Are we grieved for Jesus when we see him shamed and dishonored? And in verse 35 it says, And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to the lad, now run, find the arrows which I shot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? Do you remember what that was supposed to mean? You're going to have to leave. And I'm not going to be able to see you. And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste! Hurry. Don't delay. Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad didn't know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, carry them into the city. And as soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place Toward the south, he fell on his face to the ground and he bowed down three times and they kissed one another and they wept together. But look what it says. But David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me. And between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. 
According to the Bible, these are the last words that they ever speak to one another. Hearts are broken. David hides behind the stone of his trusted friend. The signal? Etzel. Departure. Jonathan's arrows were shot to warn him. Jonathan's arrow is an arrow that he sent out in love to warn his friend that his father had another arrow. And it was aimed at David's heart. And that Saul's arrow was meant to wound him or kill him. And the only safe course for David was to flee from the stone itself. Sometimes. Sometimes the only thing that you can do is get out of Dodge. Where all of a sudden the world is falling apart and life hangs in the balance. And the only thing that you can do is get to a place of safety. David never asks for his friend to follow him. Don't you find that interesting? David doesn't say, I want you to leave your father and I want you to leave your family and I want you to follow me into the wilderness. I want to ask you a question. If David had asked Jonathan, come with me. Come with me. What do you suppose he would say? I suspect that he would. I suspect that he would. Jesus doesn't ask everyone. Remember when the rich young ruler came to him and he said, Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? And he goes, hey, love God with your whole heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Honor your mom and your dad. Keep the commandments. Hey, these are the things that I've done ever since I was a kid. And the Bible says, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, said, there's one more thing that I want you to do. I want you to sell everything that you have. I want you to give it to the poor. And I want you to come and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sorrowful because he was rich indeed. Can you imagine? If he had done it, though, if he had said, I'm going to do it, I am going to forsake everything and go on the greatest adventure that life has ever known. Not everyone gets called to the lonely place. He leaves. He goes into the wilderness alone. Grief-stricken, rejected, sorrowful. Now, I want you to just picture this for a moment. This is like a scene out of a Hollywood movie. It's even more compelling than a Hollywood movie because it's the Word of God. Here are these two broken men sobbing over the fact that their friendship has been so disrupted. And David walks into the wilderness. Everything that David has is gone. His job is gone. His wife is gone. His family is gone. His friend is gone. The only thing he has left are his wits and his pride. And in a few days, even those are going to be seriously challenged. David, the darling of Israel, heads off into the wilderness. Moses had a similar experience as the prince of Egypt and he becomes the shepherd of the desert and David goes into the wilderness to suffer. Jonathan will go back to his father's court 
where his family hates what he loves the most. But that's exactly what you do as a Christian. You return to a world that is bitter and hostile and deeply hateful towards Jesus. By the way, which person do you suppose is going to lead the loneliest life? Jonathan in his father's court? Or David in his father's wilderness? Sometimes you get called to walk a path of suffering, to walk a path of loneliness, to walk a path of isolation. Both will share a mutual consolation. Both will grieve over each other's circumstance. It reminds me of the church under persecution. There is Jesus in heaven. And he watches a world that hates what he loves most. You. Some of you will identify with David walking into the wilderness. Some of you will identify with Jonathan who has to go home to a husband or a wife or a family or a boss that despises and ridicules what you love the most. God has a plan for Jonathan and God has a plan for David. And it's about to unfold. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that sometimes we live in such a wicked world. People hate you. And they hate us. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would remember that in their vitriol, in their hissing, in their persecution, Lord, they hated you way before they hated us. And Lord, I pray for those of us that you've invited to take the walk. The walk of loneliness, the walk of suffering, the walk of rejection. The walk of tribulation. The walk of grief, the walk of sorrow. That Lord, we would come to depend on what you care about the most. Lord, we know that sometimes when we're stripped of all of the substitutes, sometimes when we're stripped of everything that we've grown to depend upon, and the only thing that we have left to rely upon and to cling to is you, that we find ourselves in the place where we always belonged. In Jesus' name.